You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Well, thanks very much, Tim, and uh, welcome. Uh, first of all, big thanks to uh, Frank Torres and his colleagues at Microsoft. Thank you, Frank, for this uh, great opportunity. Um, and just very briefly, um, my organization, the Family Online Safety Institute, we're an international nonprofit working to make the online world safer for kids and their families. And we work in the area of public policy, industry best practice, and something we call good digital parenting, which no doubt we're going to talk a little bit about uh, in a moment. Um, it is a huge pleasure and great privilege to have Dana Boyd here. Uh, I've known Dana for a while. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we can put years to it, but it's probably uh, since the last decade anyway. And um, It's she, been a decade. It's been a decade, okay. Uh, but it's been a fun decade. And uh, it's been quite a journey, too. And um, I am just thrilled that she's put her wisdom and her, uh, her insights and particularly the voices of kids into this book. And I highly, highly recommend you run out afterwards if you don't already have a copy and get one. Um, so let's – and by the way, I'm going to make sure that there's plenty of opportunity for Q&A. So think about things, everything you ever wanted to ask Dana, but we're – not able to do so. She's, she's here and uh, willing to share her experiences and expertise with us. Um, so, Dana, let me start with a really difficult question, and, and that is, why? why? Why did you write this book, and why now? Why is now an important time for this book to come out? Yeah. You know, this book, in many ways, started a decade ago, um, which is that I started looking at uh, young people's use of social media uh, as part of a MacArthur-funded project to really try to understand how technology was transforming young people's lives. And I came about it as, uh, you know, really the first, first among the first cohort of young people who I myself grew up online. Like, the Internet was very much my saving grace. And so my goal was to sort of dive in and see, you know, what had changed from my teenage years and to think a lot about identity and what young people were sharing online. And I wasn't aware of the various anxieties um, that were about to brew. Um, and this, you know, really started, you know, 2003, 2004 kind of time period. Um, and so I decided to look at what was really the emerging sites at the time, which were LiveJournal and Zanga um, and AOL Instant Messenger. Um, and then I had the great opportunity, because I was doing so much work on social network sites separately, I was in this great position to then follow the rise and fall of MySpace, and then the rise and we can talk about the fall of uh, Facebook. Um, and so I got to see sort of these dynamics unfold. And I'd been really writing in many ways on my blog. I've been talking to journalists. I've been, you know, speaking most of the more scholarly communities and to, to, to various experts. But I kept getting people coming at me being like, well, my kid. <laughs> and it was very much from a parent perspective. And I would hear it from educators, and I would hear it from policymakers and journalists trying to understand what was going on. And so I decided to try to step back and write a really public-facing book. Um, and this book, even though I will, you know, I will warn you that there's, a, there's an endnote section um, that if you're not a scholar, you might want to ignore. Uh, but there's, you know, the majority of the book is really meant to address the various concerns that keep coming up, the concerns you've dealt with, you know, over and over, uh, you know, over the years, the questions of privacy, the questions of bullying, the questions of digital natives, um, addiction, all of this, you know, really trying to tackle it and, and offer it as a gift um, to other people in the hopes that people can take a step back and appreciate what young people are doing. So, okay, so that's a bit of the why. Talk about the how, because yeah. you went on quite a journey throughout this great country of ours, and um, almost in an anthropological kind of a way. Talk, talk about the journey you took. So, I mean, I, was, I should note I was trained under anthropologists, but I'm not technically an anthropologist. Um, there's a lot of academic fighting over those terms, so I try to avoid it. Um, but my work looks a lot like anthropological methods, except with a slight, slight twist to it. In the early days of social network sites, in particular Friendster and MySpace, the technology behind those systems was such that each account that was created was given a unique user identifier, a number, that was in order. Um, uh, so an, a new account created on MySpace would result in just iterating up and being you know, one more number, the result of which is that I could actually randomly sample all of MySpace on a regular basis. And I did that at the beginning of the project, where I literally would sit there and be like, give me a random sample of, you know, 20 profiles, and I would look at this every day and get a sense of what was happening online. 
And then I decided that I really wanted to um, work with young people and, and understand it from their point of view, not just what I was seeing as their digital traces. Um, and so I started uh, a process of doing pretty classical um, ethnographic fieldwork. Um, I spent time in 16 different U.S. states um, in a variety of communities that are from rural, um, semi-rural, urban, and suburban, um, a variety of different privileges and different backgrounds. And I spent time just trying to participate in young people's lives. This meant that I spent time in schools, at after-school programs. I went to a lot of high school football games, um, school dances. Um, I uh, ended up eating a lot of Mickey D's, um, which is not particularly good for my gut. Um, and then I would go and I started uh, interviewing um, a, uh, a small group of young people very explicitly to get their voices and include their voices. And so the, the sample that's used in there is of about 166 um, U.S. teens representing a diverse point of, or diverse uh, perspectives. Um, but the nice thing I had was that, especially in those early days, I could keep mapping it back onto this random sample of all of MySpace. It became much more difficult with Facebook, but by then I had a sense of what I was seeing in terms of diversity. So let, let's start right at the beginning. And uh, one of the states you went to was Tennessee. Uh-huh. And you went to a football game in Nashville. Uh-huh. And what did you see there? So this is a, you know, a fabulous moment where I'm sitting, um, I, you know, I went back to this, uh, this, this football game and it was a homecoming night and I had this sort of classic flashback to my own teenage years and I was surprised at how much things were immediately legible to me. It became so obvious that things hadn't really changed that much. And so, you know, if you've been to a high school football game, there are certain structures of how people sit themselves in the stands, right? There's the home team, there's a away team. And in the, in, you know, each side, there's the section for the marching band, there's the section with the parents, and then there's the section where um, the students are sitting. And as always, there's sort of a hierarchy uh, within you know, the students seating and who gets to sit where, with the seniors getting to sit, you know, depending on which school is at the top or at the bottom, and, and each class being separate. And then, of course, there's the section where, um, near, usually near the food, uh, where a whole group of other teenagers are sort of milling about. And if you've spent time at these environments, you'll also notice that in theory, people are paying attention to the football game. In reality, not so much. Um, and so what I was intrigued by was how uh, the teenagers and the adults were, were ch- uh, you know, engaging with the situation. For the teenagers, they were there, they were rowdy, they were socializing, they were talking to all their friends, they were having a field day. Their phones, you know, when, they, when their phones would come into the situation, they were, you were, they were clearly texting for coordination, and that was really clear if you would watch it. They were taking pictures, whether it was selfies or with a small group of people, um, just to sort of have fun. And you could tell when the phone actually rang, um, the first thing that would come up was be like, Mom, and so it was like a guarantee that the only person actually calling was a parent. Meanwhile, um, and so they were really present, they were really engaged, they were really active and social. Meanwhile, the parent section was unbelievably quiet. They were all in the stands, and you could tell that many of them had kids in the game or in the marching band or, you know, as cheerleaders, and they were sitting there on the devices the whole time, talking to no one. And I just sort of laughed um, at this at this situation because I've seen so many parents tell me, it's like, young people, they don't socialize, they don't know how to interact with people, they're always on their devices. And I was just laughing because they were basically talking about themselves in the situation, whereas the teenagers were having a field day. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I have a daughter who's a senior in high school, and you just described uh, one Friday evening not long ago, and I, you know, I, I recognize my, my own self in there. You, you split the book up into a number of different uh, kind of subject themes, and one of the first ones you talk about is identity. And I'm, I, I like the way you talked about the way in which teens kind of mess around with their identity, particularly on, on Facebook. So they might have – well, I don't want to jump in. Talk, talk about what you were saying in, in terms of them. Why do they do that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, maybe I'd even back up before Facebook because I, it all started with my fascination with how young people were engaging with AOL, AOL Instant Messenger, where it was about choosing a handle or a nickname that would really, you know, reflect something about what you were interested in. And you would see these interesting transitions, right? Yeah. When I would see something like, Care Bear 3344, you knew you were dealing with a different age group than when you were dealing with something like Dharma Bum, right? And it was really fascinating to see these tastes and these interests that would get played out um, and reflected in what was a very simple way of doing identity performance on, you know, I am. Um, And then along came MySpace, 
And what we started to see was that young people would take that same sort of playfulness. They would come up with these monikers, these ways of expressing themselves、um, on MySpace, and they would have a field day doing this. Now, MySpace was a very funny platform because their technical savvy was relatively limited、um, as a company, and so they didn't、uh, recognize that people could put things into the SQL database through the forms.、Um, if you're not a tech geek in the room, don't worry about this. But the result of which is that whole dynamic of really the gaudy backgrounds and colors that you might have remembered from that age. Were all because of a technical mistake by, made by the company, but it meant that people made these great performances, these unbelievable displays of you know all sorts of different things that became so expressive, and they started to look like a teenager's、um, you know bedroom、uh, you know wall complete with the collages of media and things that they were interested in. But there were certain things that were really funny in that environment because. MySpace asks you to list a couple of key things about yourself, including your geography, where you were from, and what you found is that an overwhelmingly large number of people were from Afghanistan or Zimbabwe, otherwise known as the first and last of the of the、um, uh, of the countries in alphabetical order, or Christmas Island, which itself was just funny.、Um, <laughs> likewise, you started to see, you know, these modifications of age, right? And you know, for those of you who can remember 15-year-old boy humor, there's nothing funnier than saying you're 60. Right, and that kind of thing would get portrayed onto MySpace as just ways of playing with the system. And when you ask young people, they're like, "Well, you're lying," and they're like, "No, our friends know exactly how old we are. They know exactly where we're from. Why does the site need to know that information?" Things really changed、um, with Facebook, in part because Facebook entered the scene、um, as、uh, you know. As something different than MySpace, and it was really positioned、um, as a safe, private,、um, you know, uh, gentle uh, complement to what was going on with with MySpace, which at this point was actually very heavily used by musicians. It was identified with a lot of urban culture, and we can talk about the race and class implications that got invoked in this.、Um, but with Facebook, you know, they demanded the site demanded real names, and for the earliest years that went on there. People provided them because they thought of it as a really quiet place. That did change over time,、um, and people got a lot more creative in the kinds of things that they would put up there.、Um, I will note that for a lot of Black and Latino youth, when they started going into Facebook, they actually didn't use their real names, which was very different from white and Asian youth.、Um, but there was also other weird play things, like for example, Facebook allowed you to list who your siblings were. Well, that of course quickly became the place where you listed your besties, right? Like this was where your best friends were all identified as a way of of positioning yourself within a broader environment. And so, you know, if you would just run the numbers on Facebook, you would be convinced that the average teenager had 13 siblings in this country, right? Because it was just a way of marking these things. But it was all of these attempts to try to figure out playfulness and identity, and that I would say is is really transformed yet again in a world of app culture.、Um, and so, what we're seeing right now with sites like Instagram is that it's all of these ways of Playing with the, you know the environment you're around, what you think of as cool.、Um, it's not just about people pictures, but it's about you know the artifacts of your life. And so we keep seeing these new tools get used to do all sorts of different kinds of identity work. That's extraordinarily powerful.、Um, yeah, my daughter has twelve、uh, siblings and five children. <laughs> Fantastic. And I, I only just learned that the other day.、Um, let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about privacy, which is、mm-hmm. a big hot button issue both here up on the hill, but. You know more generally, and and this kind of notion that teens today don't care about privacy.、Yeah. You you talked about、um, I love this phrase、uh, public by default, private through effort, and and also I kind of got the sense that teens, particularly teens, were kind of hiding in full view. Yeah. What do you what do you mean by all this? So you know, when teenagers started to engage with these sites in the early、uh, early part of my study. Adults really hadn't caught on to things, right? They really just weren't that present. And so when I would jump onto MySpace, things were pretty literal、um, in the U.S.、Uh, it was always sort of a fascinating thing because we would talk about, you know, what was happening in China, where people were were constantly think about thinking about surveillance of the state, and where people were doing a lot of encoding. And there was all of this reference to other countries. And then, as adults started getting onto Facebook, and really by the time everything has shifted to Facebook, young people started to realize that all of these people who held direct power over them—parents, teachers, law enforcement, college admissions officers, military recruiters—all of them were also present simultaneously in these major social media. And so it became this really challenging issue of how do you manage different、um, priorities, different values, different communities in light of all of these different audiences. And so, what you know, teenagers struggled with as they were engaging in these environments was how to manage a sense of privacy. 
where privacy wasn't simply the control of the flow of information, but a control of a social situation. So people didn't misinterpret what was going on. And so, you know, what was difficult is that even if you could manipulate the Facebook privacy settings, even if you could understand them as they shifted over and over again, it didn't matter because all it took was for mom to sort of come and look over your shoulder and, you know, your cover was blown. And so what I started to see was that young people's ways of approaching privacy became much more sophisticated and much more challenged. That instead of trying to restrict access to content, they focused on restricting access to meaning. In other words, they would post things that they knew their mother wouldn't understand what was going on. A song lyric that was, of course, an in-joke with the friend group. Um, use Overuse of pronouns, like, oh my gosh, can you believe what she said, where everybody knows exactly who she is and exactly what was said. Um, and these ways of really trying to deal with the environment. Part of it was that, you know, Young people were very willing to share, and this is this is what Stephen brings up, which is that they're w- very willing to share things that are not, you know, emotionally challenged, but they're much more sensitive to the things that might get them into trouble with their friends. And they would switch to texting or they would switch to other platforms. And we see this constant negotiation of how to deal with the fact that this material is very available. But what I started to see um, was some, you know, uh, also some really sophisticated ways of using the technology. And I had two fascinating examples here in D.C. Um, of young people who were trying to deal with very real constraints. Um, one was a young woman who felt as though everything from the past kept turning into drama in the present. By past, she meant basically a month ago. Um, and so what she did is she would log into Facebook, she would read the comments that were left for her, and then she would delete them. She would leave comments on other people's posts and other people's pictures, and then she would log in the next day and she would delete them. This was at a time when people were talking about the wall, so it was referred to as whitewalling, the idea of keeping your wall completely white, to try to make it a real-time activity. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, anybody could copy things from the past and bring it back to the present. She's like, yeah, but they won't because that's sketchy, right? And it was an interesting moment of turning it from a technical issue to one of a social issue. Um, And to give a concrete example of the um, encoding issue, uh, which is much more prevalent and much more common as a way of going about this, I'll give one from the book, which is of a young woman named Carmen, um, who's who's of Argentinian descent, um, and that's important to the story. And she um, lives lives in Boston, and she was she had she and her boyfriend had broken up, and she wanted to be able to tell her friends um, that things were really lousy. She wanted social support, she wanted validation, she wanted love. But she knew that her mother tended to overreact to anything um, emo or emotional in any way. And so she was trying to figure out how to say something such that her, you know, that was sort of sad, but that her mother wouldn't think she was suicidal because those overreactions were just too difficult to deal with. So realizing her mother would not understand either geeky references or old school British references, she put up a song lyric. Uh, Mind you, teenagers' uh, use of song lyrics is very heavy when um, thinking about emotions. There's no better way to express one's emotions than through song lyrics. So she put up song lyrics from Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. For those who do not know the Monty Python reference, this is a song sung during the life of Brian when the key character is being crucified. There is nothing happy about this scene. But her mother, not recognizing the reference at all, immediately commented, it's like you're having a great day, that's wonderful. And her friends immediately texted her. And this is the kind of sophisticated encoding where we start to see that privacy in light of one's peer groups becomes so much about these sophisticated way of, of hiding in plain sight. All right, well then, speaking of the way in which adults don't quite get their kids, um, in your discussions about addiction, you say many adults project their priorities onto teens and pathologize their children's interactions with technologies. What what are you talking about here? You know, it's very funny to be talking about this in D.C. because one of the things I saw in D.C., uh, over and over again in the families that I visited is that um, parents would talk about how their kids were spending so much time on their devices or on their computers and all these other ways. And then if I'd sit at the dinner table um, in these households, especially for people who worked in the government, their parents would be on the phone, their phones all the time for work. Um, and, you know, if the parents came home for dinner at all. Um, and that was actually really challenging to see in all these ways because adults were very much constantly engaging in this device and feeling as though they were tethered to it for professional reasons um, and feeling as though they had a right to be on this. And they were chastising young people for doing very similar practices. 
Now, what young people are doing when they engage is, is actually a lot more fun than what most of us adults are doing when we're, you know, uh, constantly tethered to work, which is that young people are really trying to be connected to their friends all the time. Um, and what we forget as adults is that we don't have... Uh, you know, we didn't, we have so much more freedom. We have the ability to, you know, choose where we are, um, how we spend our time. We may think we don't. We might complain about our bosses. But the thing is, is that we have a lot more flexibility. For young people, they are extraordinarily constrained. And the constraints that we've placed on them, particularly in middle upper class environments over the last 30 years, are often not recognized and they've become invisible. And so I want to sort of explain some of those because it's important to put this in context. In the 1980s, we implemented curfew laws around this country that made it very difficult for young people to go out after certain hours if it wasn't work-related. Um, we started, uh, you know, implementing things around school choice, which meant as a young person, it's not likely that your friends live really close by to you in many jurisdictions in this country. So it's a long distance, which means even if you could get on a bike, it's hard to do so. We responded to a, uh, a narrative of latchkey culture um, so negatively that we overstructured young people's lives where we made certain that they go from morning to night and activities to activities to activities. And so these forces, along with more recent, you know, dynamics, which is that, you know, getting a car is expensive, getting access to gas is expensive, and even if your child has access to these things, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the freedom to just go out and be in a car because, of course, many U.S. states have restrictions about um, how many young people can be in a car together, especially if there's a, um, a teen driver, and there's a variety of other factors. So, so what happens is that, and, and by, this is on top of all of the culture of fear issues, what happens is that young people um, you know, get to 9 p.m. at night, and all they want to do is hang out with their friends. They've been in school and activities and been forced to do homework and all of these very structured dynamics, and they just want a space to hang out. And rather than sneaking out of their houses, um, you know, trying to get to their friends um, through the windows, what they're doing is they're jumping online where they know they can run into not just one other friend but their entire peer group. And so what we've seen is that the online environment and the things that we see through, you know, mobile phones and through, you know, social media are really a place where young people can gather en masse to do the things that we've always seen teenagers do, to hang out with their friends, to gossip, to joke around, um, to socialize. And as adults, we don't necessarily appreciate that this is what is going on and the amazing amount of learning that is happening in these environments. And so it all gets messed up. It all gets complicated in really weird ways that we see these adults expecting young people to live based on our values, based on our assumptions of, you know, schooling first, you know, forget sociality, forget friends, you will follow our rules, and young people are just looking for a place to call their own. Hmm. All right, well, let's, um, let's talk about online predators. Um, so we've had a media fixation on the boogeyman, the, the outside yep. force, the person who's going to come and take our children away. We had probably the worst TV show of all time, To Catch a Predator, as an online, you know, a TV sting series, basically. Yeah. What, what is this fixation? How has it damaged um, the way in which peer, uh, parents fear about their kids being online? Yeah, you know, this has been a heartbreaking one for me, in part because our obsession with sexual predation has created a myth that actually simultaneously obscures the very real sexual risks that young people face and the very real physical risks that young people face, while also serving to restrict other young people from being able to do anything social. And so it's, it's like a double-edged sword of frustration. You know, I think it's important to sort of step back and look at what kind of sexual crimes against children do exist, how do they play out, and what technology, when and where are technologies involved. And there's been phenomenal research in this. Um, and I will, you know, especially give credit to David Finkelhor and his team at the Crimes Against Children Research Center, who've just done the most spectacular work here. And they, you know, tracked these issues over a long period of time and found very clearly that when sexual, when um, problematic and unhealthy sexual encounters, criminal sexual encounters occur involving the internet, they almost always take a very particular form. It is um, uh, teenagers who lie about their age, engaging in sexual behaviors online with people that are in their late 20s, early 30s at most, I should say that, you know, I'll back up in a second, but this is the sexual crime component. Late 20s, early 30s, um, talking to these strangers about sex, 
meeting up with them knowing it will be about sex and doing so repeatedly. When you look at these young people, they have a whole host of challenges going on in their lives. The likelihood of um, sexual violence at home is extraordinarily high. The likelihood of abuse in their home community is extraordinarily high. So that when we see these teenagers, we should be figuring out how to do really important interventions because they are crying out for help. Now, that said, you will hear these numbers bandied about, like, one in seven um, young people are sexually solicited online. That number goes through the hill like wildfire, except what people don't realize is that most of those sexual solicitations are from people's peers. This is other teenagers or, or you know, or just 18 to 22-year-olds, um, you know, soliciting a 17-year-old. And what we, in the conversation about predation, what we don't do is help young people think about what kinds of sexual violence really do exist within peer groups. And that sexual violence is a much more realistic concern um, to really think about how to combat, to help young people assess and what's going on. So we spend this time creating this myth of these you know, 40-something-year-old men who will reach out on the Internet and grab a child when we do nothing to prepare young people to really deal with the very realistic sexual uh, abuses that they do face in their homes, in their schools, and in their communities with their peers and with the adults that they see every day, in everyday life. Now, what this ends up doing is, is that we've spent so much time then, let's block young people from interacting with strangers, and we've done a disservice on multiple lens. One is just a cultural one. We've set in motion this idea that all adults are strangers um, uh, and all strangers are dangerous. And actually, it's really important that young people have adults that they can reach out to in their lives in really healthy ways. And so I end up seeing this backfiring when I would be talking to young people who would be dealing with really serious issues within their home community, but they wouldn't reach out to anybody because strangers are dangerous and strangers are bad. And I'm just like, what's going on in your home world? You clearly need counselors and support and all these other structures. And we, by moving it in that direction, we've undermined that. We've also undermined a way in which uh, adults can play a very important role when they're already in young people's lives. For example, the conversational and sexual predation moved a space within education that said, you know, teachers uh, should never befriend um, young people in social media. And yet actually having teachers and coaches and cool aunts and uncles present in their responsible role as those, you know, mentors um, is actually really, really valuable. So we keep age segregating um, without realizing that having those entwined environments is really powerful. And I think about this in terms of um, uh, an urban theorist by the name of Jane Jacobs. And she made it very clear in a ton of research that happened in urban environments that if you want to create safety within a city, the key is what she would talk about is eyes on the street. This was about people literally sitting on their stoops and being present. And, you know, when the kids were getting themselves into trouble and they were teasing each other, you stayed out of it. But when somebody fell off their bike, you would go and make certain that they were doing okay. And we've created this environment where people, adults are afraid to check, to see if young people are doing okay. Um, young people are not willing to talk to any adult that is not somebody that they immediately know. And we've created these huge separations. Because what ends up happening, you know, in these kids that are really struggling online we get so obsessed with saying, oh, well, you know, their parents need to know about it or it's all about their parents. Most of the young people that I see struggling online, their parents aren't present. Their parents are part of the problem. And so we need to actually figure out how to support them as an ecosystem and trying to get them offline, trying to stop them from interacting isn't going to address the very real problems within our society, which I think that we do, you know, we owe it to young people who are struggling to see their cries for help online, appreciate them and help them. All right. Well, then, speaking of cries for help, let's shift to what probably the media is, and, and legislators for that matter, are paying a lot more attention to, uh, cyberbullying. Yep. And, and unpick for us, will you, terms like bullying, cyberbullying, and what you refer to as drama. Yep. What, are you, what are you talking about here? Yeah, so one of the funniest things as a researcher is that, you know, we make up a lot of words um, as academics that nobody in real life actually uses. Um, and so it's always really entertaining when you see these alignments. And bullying is one of those funny terms where, for once, academics' definitions of bullying are actually completely aligned with teenagers' use of that term and completely misaligned with how everybody else uses the term. So academics refer to bullying very narrowly as psychological, physical, or social aggression repeated over time by people of differential physical or social power. It is the cool kid picking on the, on the geek. It is the big kid picking on the little kid. It is that dynamic. And that is actually how young people will refer to bullying. They use other terms to refer to the wide variety of meanness and cruelty that they face 
in everyday life. Adults, on the other hand, have a tendency, especially journalists, so I want to strangle on this one, have a tendency to use the word bullying to refer to everything from lightweight teasing to serious criminal harassment, um, rather than actually thinking about the narrow definition that scholars use. The reason that this is important is that the interventions that we need for that wide array of meanness and cruelty are actually very, very, very different. Now, when you look at young people, I, you know, Alice Marwick, my colleague, and I decided we would go in and do some field work trying to understand privacy. It was, that was our original goal. And we kept hearing this, this use of this word drama. And so then we started interviewing and trying to understand bullying. And teachers would be like, oh, no, no, we don't have any bullying at our school. Bullying is not a problem. And then they would go on and talk about all the drama and the pank cranking and the punking. So we tried to figure out what was going on. And we realized that young people were using the language of drama for um, a, a range of things. They were using it from things that didn't have any serious emotional attachment to them, things that were just, you know, it was just friends and, you know, it was a small disagreement, to things that were actually much more seriously hurtful. And the reason that they were doing so is that they didn't want to position themselves as either a victim or a perpetrator. And that was actually extraordinarily important in their understanding of where they were. But they also, because they saw it as a cyclical dynamic, it was best friends who'd broken up or who stopped being best friends and it usually involved a boy, right? And it was because of these dynamics where drama ensued. And so young people were trying to work these things out. What happened is, is that when we started to see regulation come in into line and schools started to say that they had to intervene in every aspect of bullying, um, schools co would come in and basically decide in a situation of drama who was the bully and who was the perpetrator, often getting it completely wrong, um, you know, going in a punitive mode with this, which ended up making things much worse within the, in the environment. Even when schools would go after things that were truly bullying, when they would identify a bully and they would go onto a punitive mode with it, they would assume that they would make things better. But what people fail to realize about those who are engaged in bullying is that people don't engage in bullying just abstractly because they feel like being mean. They're usually facing a lot of major issues in other parts of their lives that you know, are part of why they're lashing out and trying to assert power in, you know, in this school setting. And so when you punish somebody because they're a bully, what you end up not recognizing is maybe abuse that they're facing at home, addiction issues, mental health issues, sexuality issues, which tend to spiral things even more out of control. And so this is where I've been really struggling because we've, you know, with cyberbullying, everybody's become like, oh, we need to do something more for the cyber. So another sort of weird, you know, uh, data point, which, you know, you may not be familiar in this audience, which is that um, scholars have been tracking the state of bullying for 30 years. If you stabilize the definition of bullying, bullying has not risen because of the internet at all. And this is usually shocking to people um, because it's, it's, you know, it's been continuous. More powerfully is that when you survey young people today, and this has been done for the last 10 years, they continuously report that, sur that bullying is worse in face-to-face -face settings. It happens with greater emotional duress and with longer-term consequences when it happens at school than whatever happens online. And so this is a really strange issue to play out because this is not to say that there's not bullying online. It is very, it is very real and it is very serious. But it is almost always that what plays out online becomes visible to you in ways that other aspects of bullying do not become visible to adults. And I think that this is, again, a moment where Rather than lashing out and trying to regulate the technology, rather than moving into a punitive model within the schools, why can't we take a moment to figure out when we see young people engaged in this form of meanness and cruelty, what are the kinds of interventions that we can do? How do we recognize the visibility? And one sort of final point, which I think is particular to this town, is that we have made meanness and cruelty into a national sport. We have decided that this is how we're doing politics. We've decided that this is how we're doing entertainment with reality television. And again, when I go into families and households, I am shocked by how often I hear adults be like, oh, you know, you know bullying, this is terrible, et cetera. And then I hear them bad-mouthing their boss, um, their colleagues, et cetera, in their home. If we want to address meanness and cru cruelty holistically, it has to start with us. Putting laws in place to go after teens are not going to help. We need to actually be the role models of the society we want to live in. Well, speaking of laws, and here we are in Washington, here we are in Capitol Hill. By the way, there's some seats at the front here if anyone wants to rest their weary souls. And, and I'm going to be coming to questions in a moment. Um, talk a little bit about COPPA, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. And for that matter, uh, you know, there are a number of bills uh, pending here on the Hill uh, from Do Not Track Kids Act and so on. Right. What, where are we getting it right and where we're not so much? No, I really struggled with the um, Child's Online Protect Privacy Protection Act. Um, you know, I encountered it 
through my research. It was not something I understood the, the legal background to until I started diving into it. Because uh, what I kept finding, of course, is that I would go into these homes, um, talking to young people about when they got access to these services. And, of course, they were on various services well before they were 13. Um, and when I would ask them how... Um, uh, how they learned to get onto these sites. And they were like, oh, my mom made my account for me. And I'm like, really now? And so I actually went and did um, uh, a national uh, survey of parents and found that, guess what? It is really parents that are teaching young people to circumvent the age restrictions that, you know, have, have place. And then I start to say, well, what was COPPA really meant to do? And if you look back to the idea, you know, uh, the original notions of COPPA, it had both a, a safety mechanism, which is this question of, you know, how much should we be, you know, supporting young people from being able to access um, these services that might not be age appropriate for them. There's a, there was also a privacy component to it, which is the question of, um, you know, what kind of advertisement and what kind of data should be collected about these, about children. And the implementation of the law was very much about trying to empower parents. And it was actually a really well-intended piece of legislation. How do we empower parents to make certain that parents are being able to do um, the right thing by their youth. Um, and then I started to step back and say, well, you know, of course, when it got implemented, it got implemented by numerous corporate um, actors as saying, we don't know how to actually get, you know, go through these steps. It becomes too onerous, especially at an international level, especially for small companies. Um, it also gets really messy when you're talking about undocumented youth, um, when you're talking about parents who do not have credit cards. The processes and the structures in place to verify become pretty burdensome, particularly in working class communities. And so, you know, companies have made their decisions and, you know, I've watched a lot of people complain that these companies' decisions are, are just to abuse young people. Most of what I've seen from these companies is no, it's just challenging to figure it out. And so they basically restrict, uh, sites to 13 plus. And the result of which is that I just watch overwhelmingly parents helping them circumvent that. And that's where, you know, it's really tricky to me because there's an entire cohort of young people that have now been raised where lying um, is appropriate. And I'm, I often question what that means and what the implications are. And this is where I struggle with these laws because I think that many of them really come from such good intentions but don't understand the social dynamics that play out on the ground. And I think the other really important point that I, I want to uh, sort of highlight is that the conversations that happen about online safety, about data privacy, tend to be conversations in the middle upper class communities. And they don't take into consideration the way in which these realities are very much classed and raced. And so one of the places where I see this has this conversation around advertising culture. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be the person who's going to stand up and, and, you know, go rah-rah on advertising culture. I think that there's a lot of it that's deeply insidious. But what happens is that when sites and services and apps require people to pay, it pretty much guarantees to exclude, you know, working class populations in this country. And so I think that one of the challenges is that as we've pushed young people out of the public spaces, the physical public spaces, they have used what they're seeing in these commercial apps as a place that is really an online public sphere. And we may not like it. We not, may not like that it's really commercial. We may not like the capitalist infrastructure that we've built to make these things happen. But I get really wary about, you know, approaches that say young people should not be on these services because they're commercial. Because really, at the end of the day, I want young people to have spaces where they can hang out with their friends. And we have made it very hard for them to do. Interesting. Okay, let's take a little break and uh, take your questions, comments, thoughts. I was warned that DC doesn't ask questions. You've got to prove them wrong. <laughs> They're full of questions. They're just not articulating them at the moment. I have a ton more, but uh, anyone want to jump in at this point? All right. We won't put any of you in the spot. Oh. Uh, okay. Hi, I'm Carolyn Crouch. We actually met by email recently. Um, I'm curious. You had sort of endless means, endless social resources to solve this very social problem. What would you do? Which social problem? Well, there's a whole variety of them. Right, social problem of teens being more conscientious online. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's a couple of different things that I would um, implement. Um, one, I would be implementing, you know, really strong social structures where people can turn to when they're actually uh, needing help. Um, and this is, you know, this is about social services. This is about providing mental health care for young people in this country. 
Um, you know, I'm on the board of an organization called Crisis Text Line, which we have not yet started advertising, um, but we are already well over a million young people having texted in in various states of crisis about everything from coming out to abuse from their parents to suicide ideology. Um, and it's heartbreaking to see how few social services there are to turn to support these young people to. For example, young people who are facing disordered eating challenges, which is one of the dynamics that occur in serious pressure and stress environments. And guess what? Give me one mental health pro- uh, plan or, or health plan that actually covers, you know, intensive disordered eating care. Like, it doesn't. So this is, I mean, there's, there's to me, a mental health and social services component to this. Um, there's another component to it, which is what I think of as eyes on the street. Um, so we used to have these programs. Um, I participated in them in college of street outreach. The way that street outreach programs worked was it was college kids. We were cool, so we would we would go and we would hang out with teenagers that were you know uh, facing addiction, facing you know they were runaway, they were really struggling on the street, and we were able to connect them to social services. We often talk about, you know, oh, well, these sites should be responsible for, you know, when kids are hurting. That's not the right place to be doing this. You know, engineers should not be the ones doing social interventions. Uh, but we should be thinking within communities how to build that infrastructure and that that infrastructure is porous online and offline. Um, another thing that I've really wanted, and, you know, again, you're letting me have my wish list. Um, another thing I've always wanted to exist um, is what I think of as a, um, you know, sort of, digital peace core kind of thing, you call it whatever you want, which is that um, young people have an opportunity uh, when they, you know, after high school to go and participate in um, a different community um, to really engage with the technology development of that community so that we actually start building out public sector um, technology spaces. Um, and, you know, I can sort of outline, the, you know, my dream version of that, but it's really about having young people start to do that knitting work for, like, having 20-something, 20, 20 18 to 20-somethings, doing that knitting work for young people. But a lot of this for me is it has to start with the communities. It has to start with the young people that are hurting, and it really requires adults, you know, helping with aspects of social services and mental health. Of course, you know, my wish list requires funding, and um, that, especially that kind of thing which requires government funding. And I have seen a lot more moves to do, you know, punitive blocking types things than I have to think about funding things that will really help young people on the ground. Um, and I think that we end up trying to exclude young people from public life rather than support them to participate in it. And that makes me very sad. Yeah, I mean, me? Yes, please. Hi, uh, David Levy with the Software Information Industry Association. Cool. Um, I guess I've got kind of a double question on uh, um, one, when you kind of conclude, or perhaps you're kind of concluding then that COPPA has been effective in a very strange way, although parents are maybe um, getting involved and in circumventing the rules, it's providing that, that, that consent mechanism, so technically that's, that's kind of working in a strange way. Um, and then, I guess the second part of that, there's been a lot of discussion here in D.C. about the appropriate age, uh, and I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on kind of putting an age on, on So, engaged parents are engaged, regardless of what technical mechanisms you put in place. Um, and so, that's become, that's, I mean, that's clear in every community that I've seen. When parents aren't engaged, technical or legal interventions don't make them get more engaged. There becomes other mechanisms to work around it. Um, and I think that's really, it's challenging. I mean, I, I, even with school, you know, school things, I've watched so many kids sign the papers that supposedly their parents sign that when, you know, it, it becomes, I mean, it becomes a huge challenge that way. The difficulty for me is that, okay, fine, you know, we're building sites for teenagers and by and large we're getting, we're getting those services supported. We are not innovating for the under-13s in really meaningful ways. Um, and I think that that has really stifled that entire industry. And it's not even just at the, at the like, social media layer. Like, I spent time talking to a bunch of hospitals about young people with eating disorders, about how to actually create these environments where they could um, get help. And one of the things that I ran into is that these, co- these hospitals, which are private corporate entities, were like... We won't touch the under-13s because we don't know how to work around it. And I'm just like, when hospitals aren't going to engage on eating disorders because they see that as a problem, that's an issue for me. I spent time with the MacArthur Foundation that's trying to figure out how to do meaningful interventions with education platforms for the under-13s. They can't get anybody to build them. So this is where there's so many other consequences of it that we think about the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the, um, and the Snapchats, but we don't think about the ramifications for all these other areas. 
Uh, and then you had a second part to your question that I've succeeded in forgetting. The issue for a lot of these things is that it's not clear that there is an age. There's no magical age, right, at any point. Like, you don't turn 18 and suddenly understand how the world works, even as you get sent off to war. Um, so this is this challenge of why do we have these magical ages rather than maturation? One of my, you know, my snarky responses to this, having watched my grandparents deal with things, is that I think that there should be, you know, a maximum age in which you're allowed to, to participate on this rather than a minimum age. Because really, I've watched my grandparents do things that they really shouldn't be doing. And they actually have credit cards and assets that get them to massive amounts of trouble. And so I think that this is where we have to think about what does it mean to support vulnerability rather than to think about ages. And those vulnerabilities aren't simply about an age element. They're about a variety of other factors. And I say that this is this is one of the things I'm also really struggling with at a class level. Um, when you have populations in this country who have low levels of literacy, who aren't connected into these debates in meaningful ways, whose levels of education are not very strong, they get themselves into really vulnerable places. And so I think that when we figure out legislation, it really should be thinking about vulnerabilities rather than age cutoffs. I have not seen things where age is the most determining factor on all of this. And I understand that it makes political sense that, you know, even with privacy conversations, if we just protect teenagers, I, I'm not convinced that any privacy conversation I've ever seen, it's teenagers who are the most at trouble. There are plenty of adults, including elected officials, who make idiots of themselves on all forms of social media. So it's like, how do we figure out those kinds of dynamics and we deal with it holistically. How do we deal with privacy, you know, writ large rather than just with young people? And let's stop using young people as the excuse for doing things just because they are the ones that we can have a conversation about. I think that, you know, if we want to have a conversation in this country about privacy, let's deal with it for everybody. Nice. Hi. Hi. Um, Dana, so much of this conversation breaks down to people saying kids should just use their common sense online. So should adults as well. And yet, I think experience bears out that common sense is remarkably uncommon. Given that reality, what do we do uh, to help people uh, use common sense and learn uh, what common sense is without having governments uh, interject their own decisions about what people should or shouldn't be doing online, particularly kids? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and it's a hard question because the thing is, is that it's an, it's an iterative process, right? And any parent knows that, you know, as you're trying to raise a child, you have to go through a set of iteration. There are, there are bumps and bruises and you want the bumps and bruises and not the broken bones, right? Let alone something far worse. So how do you actually expose um, and, and think about the training wheels? Um, and I think the training wheels are where we haven't had a conversation in this country because we assume we will protect young people rather than ways of actually supporting them to try things out and making certain that we're there for them. Um, and I think that this is, you know, occurs with a variety of things related to young people. I mean, I'm, I, you know, have, as my role as a college professor, nothing makes me more angry than our, our alcohol conversations in this country because I have to deal with it you know, on college campuses of the fact that we aren't helping young people have healthy relationships with alcohol and then they magically turn 21 and should have a healthy relationship. That's <laughs> not how this works. Um, and so I'm seeing it with social media as well, which is that we, if we focus so much on this abstinence conversation, if we just exclude young people from it, then all of a sudden they'll have common sense with this. This is one of the reasons why with, with children in particular, I believe that that conversation has to start young, right? When your child is, you know, six and, and, you know, playing with apps on your phone, you can have a very different conversation with them than when they're 16. So how do you start that conversation really early and it's training wheels and you build it up and you do it iteratively? How do we bring those conversations into the schooling environment? One of my frustrations um, uh, over another weird unintended consequence of, of COPPA is that the middle school teachers that I deal with will not talk about social media because their children or their students are not supposed to be on it. And so the result of which is that they're, they know their students are on it, and they won't talk with them about, you know, healthy online behaviors. And if it's not happening in the home, it's not happening in the school, where is it happening? Because we have this myth that these under-13s aren't using the services. That conversation should be happening in our schools. That conversation should be having in our me happening in our media. Instead, what our media is doing is saying, you should not be using these sites, this is, these sites are bad for you, or creating these, you know, really extreme fears, rather than saying, here's some tactics, here's some things to try. And that, to me, is why, you know, 
I, I am a big believer in Larry Lessig's reminder that all systems are regulated by four forces, the market, the law, social norms, um, and the technology or architecture. And what's challenging to me is that we keep stifling the ability for social norms to really be that conversation rather than empowering it to be there. There's no silver bullet to your, to your question. No school assembly is going to get us out of this. It is really a constant process and it requires us to collectively engage not with our, not just with our own kids, but with the kids in our community writ large. So we're beginning to run out of time. Um, and I, I do want to steer it back and, you know, know that you're a, a new parent yourself and congratulations on the, on the baby. Um, and let's, let's say for a minute in our ideal world, we have enlightened public policy and we have industry best practice. How do we become good digital parents and how specifically are you going to become a good digital parent uh, for your child? Yeah. You know, now we should note my son is seven months old, so. <laughs> never too um, young to start the conversation. It's never too young, but let's, <laughs> let's acknowledge that, you know, um, right now what he's convinced is that the little, that, you know, I, I, it's called mommy in a box, because um, when mommy is in DC, mommy comes in the box. Um, <laughs> that's the sort of main relationship with the device. Um, you know, for me, it's sort of a challenging thing because it starts with a conversation. And I think the thing that, you know, a lot of people come to me like, oh, things must be so different now that you're a parent. It's like, no, I did this research. And I'm really confident in the research. And so what it has actually led me to believe as a parent is that my most important responsibility is to try to be as calm as possible. Because the thing that I started to realize in households across this country is that stress, especially in middle-upper-class communities, stress was the most destructive factor I saw. And whether it played out on technology or whether it was, you know, within the you know, households as a whole. And so, you know, for me, what it's taught me is that, you know, my responsibility is to go home, to be present with my son, to, to let go of devices myself, um, and to really be engaged. As my son starts to interact with these tools, I mean, it will be a conversation. And it will be a conversation, many of which I'm not actually looking forward to. You know, I don't want to have the birds and the bees conversations in any form, online or off, right? <laughs> but I'm sure I will have to. And that is part of what it means to try to, you know, raise a healthy, uh, a healthy child. And I think the other thing that I had to, you know, I've had to respect is that I have to help him, you know, be a part of this world around him. And that world is going to be dripping with technology. And so my responsibility is, is to not tell him how he should act, but to um, equip him to ask the critical questions. And I'll sort of conclude with, uh, you know, there's an amazing anthropological text called Inuit Morality Play which is how Inuit society teaches young people morality. Um, and it does not fit within an American society at all because the way it's all done through a process of questioning. It's never done through a process of answers or facts, but ways of asking really hard questions. So if your child comes up to you and is, you know, like, Mommy, 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 I hate, I hate Bobby, he's mean to me. Um, that rather than saying, oh, that's okay, which would be our, our response to it, um, my response to, to my son would be like, hmm, why don't you kill him? Right? Of course, it's like, what, 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 huh? And he would look and go, no, I don't hate him that much. Well, how much do you hate him? Right? And starting to ask these questions, starting to understand boundaries is the way in which Inuit society asks young people to develop a sense of what's going on. And some of the most powerful things I've seen in terms of adults being able to interact with young people in social media have been when they recognize that they are not experts in teens' world, but use it as an opportunity to learn. Use it as an opportunity to ask questions. To ask the hard questions of like, Tell me why you did that. I just don't understand. And those moments of letting young people really tell their own stories. And I think this is what, you know, for my book, the, you know, the gift that I try to give in making this book available is to say, let's step back. Let's appreciate young people's challenges and hardships, what they're trying to do, and try to listen to them. And I've tried to bring as many voices of young people from a variety of different communities into this book in the hopes that it'll create an opportunity for people to step back and listen. Well, thank you for bringing the stories to light um, and and to encapsulate them in this brilliant, brilliant book. It's complicated by Dana Boyd. Um, for those of you who are in the business of putting together legislation or, or rules or uh, have kids yourselves, dive in here before you take your next step. Um, and uh, we can't wait to hear what the next step in your journey is going to be, particularly uh, how your son uh, progresses. So please join me in thanking Dana Boyd. Thank you.